You're listening to the Cyberwire Network, powered by N2K. And now a word from our sponsor, Netscope. Netscope is a worldwide leader in SASE and Zero Trust. Its unified platform, Netscope One, provides optimized access and zero trust security for people, devices, and data anywhere they go, helping customers reduce risk, accelerate performance, and get unrivaled visibility into any cloud, web, and private application activity. To learn more about how Netscope helps customers be ready for anything on their sassy journey, visit netskope.com. Primitive Bear is snuffling around Ukraine and Russia may be preparing deepfake video. European ports and other logistical installations are under attack by ransomware. Daniel Prince from Lancaster University on safeguarding IoT in healthcare. Our guest is Chris Wysopel of Veracode with research on increases in automation and componentization in software development. And a Chinese APT is said to be exploiting a Zimbra webmail cross-site scripting zero-day, so users... Beware. From the CyberWire studios at Data Tribe, I'm Dave Bittner with your CyberWire summary for Friday, February 4th, 2022. We open again with some notes on Russia's pressure on Ukraine and its implication for cyberspace. Russian President Putin is in Beijing for discussions with Chinese President Xi Jinping. One purpose of the visit is to secure Chinese support for Russia's stance with respect to Ukraine. While troops remain poised in Russia and Belarus, staged near the Ukrainian border, those hoping to avoid a war see hopeful signs in Russia's apparent continuing openness to diplomacy. But tensions remain high and the U.S. warns that Russia is preparing deep-fake provocations to supply a casus belli. Palo Alto Network's Unit 42 reports that Gamaradon, also known as Primitive Bear, a threat actor associated with Russia's FSB, has been active against a Western government entity in Ukraine. Which government and which organization, Unit 42 hasn't said, but it does say it's been monitoring three clusters of Gamaradon infrastructure, collecting over 100 malware samples and finding 700 malicious domains and 215 IP addresses. Unit 42 writes, quote, Monitoring these clusters, we observed an attempt to compromise a Western government entity in Ukraine on January 19, 2022. We have also identified potential malware testing activity, and reuse of historical techniques involving open-source virtual network computing software. The campaign they observed relied on phishing for its initial access, and the fish bait was the familiar and surprisingly anodyne bogus job ad. The three infrastructure clusters Unit 42 observed it characterizes as Gamaradon Downloader Infrastructure, Cluster 1, File Stealer, Cluster 2, and Pteranodon, Cluster 3, and it cautions that there are probably other so-far-undiscovered clusters in use. 
The FSB's attentions to Ukraine are nothing new and are likely to continue. Unit 42 says, quote, Gamaradon has been targeting Ukrainian victims for almost a decade. As international tensions surrounding Ukraine remain unresolved, Gamaradon's operations are likely to continue to focus on Russian interests in the region, end quote. For further background on Gamaradon's recent activity, Unit 42 recommends the study Estonia's CERT-EE published early last week. The United States yesterday said that Russia had begun to prepare the production of imagery, including video, that would present faked evidence of either a Ukrainian attack on Russian forces or Ukrainian atrocities committed against ethnic Russians in Ukraine. Quote, We believe that Russia would produce a very graphic propaganda video which would include corpses and actors that would be depicting mourners and images of destroyed locations, as well as military equipment at the hands of Ukraine or the West, even to the point where some of this equipment would be made to look like it was Western-supplied. That's Defense Department Press Secretary John Kirby speaking Thursday during a Pentagon press briefing. This is the third announcement by either the United States or the United Kingdom alleging Russian plans for provocations, or deniable false flag operations. These announcements have been warnings and preemptive in intent. The Washington Post lists the earlier allegations. On January 14th, the U.S. said that Russia had staged covert operators into Ukraine, where they were positioned to conduct false flag attacks against the nominally irregular alleged separatist forces Russia supports in Ukraine's Donetsk and Luhansk regions. A U.S. official explained, quote, the operatives are trained in urban warfare and in using explosives to carry out acts of sabotage against Russia's own proxy forces, end quote. On January 23rd, the British Foreign Office announced that Russia was advancing plans to install a pro-Russian government in Kiev. Foreign Secretary Liz Truss said, quote, The information being released today shines a light on the extent of Russian activity designed to subvert Ukraine and is an insight into Kremlin thinking. End quote. In none of these three cases did either the U.S. or U.K. provide details on the intelligence that supported their accusations, which, of course, Russia dismissed as nonsense. As preemptive announcements, however, the three accusations clearly have some utility. Should the Russian provocations occur, there's a chance they'll be recognized as such. Or, better yet, if Moscow concluded the gaffe had been blown— the provocations might not take place at all. The story's developing, and we shall see. Disruption of logistical choke points, petroleum distribution in Germany, port operations in Belgium and the Netherlands, continues to spread across Europe, industrial cyber reports. The record says that officials in the Netherlands don't believe the attacks are related, and Security Week quotes Dutch authorities as saying that the attacks were probably committed with a criminal motive, the incidents are thought to be a ransomware attack, specifically with the Conti and Black Cat strains. According to Deutsche Welle, both Europol and national authorities are investigating. The consequences of the attacks against Belgian port facilities seems to have been contained and limited. Among the operators affected was C-Tank, which works in Antwerp. The BBC reports that C-Tank's corporate parent, C-Invest, has said that its operations worldwide have been affected by the incident. For all the attention ransomware attracts as a threat to data availability and privacy, 
It's worth noting the particular threat it poses to industrial systems. Clarity's recent report on the global state of industrial cybersecurity notes that, of those who responded to their survey, about half reported an effect on operational technology and industrial control systems. Velexity reports that a Chinese APT is exploiting a cross-site scripting vulnerability in Zimbra, an email platform organizations use as an alternative to Microsoft Exchange against European governments. Velocity calls the campaign Email Thief, and it began in mid-December. The initial infestations arrive through phishing, and the emails use a two-step approach. The first email is technically benign, that is, it carries no malicious payload and contains no malicious links. Its purpose is reconnaissance. The operators want to see, first, if the email account is an actively monitored one. And if it is, they want to see whether the account user is ready and willing to open an email received out of the blue from some unfamiliar sender. Many users, we note, are willing to do that, and in many cases opening emails received out of the blue is somebody's job. So those who open the message aren't necessarily slackers, suckers, or slack-jawed doofuses. Once the operators have determined that they got a live one nibbling on the fish bait, they send a second email that contains the hook, usually a link to a malicious site that executes a cross-site scripting attack against their Zimbra webmail app. What follows can be readily imagined. Compromise of emails, compromise of networks, hijacking of accounts, which can then be used in further phishing attacks, and so on. So it doesn't stop, alas, but... Keep plugging away out there, friends. Every day, your IAM tech debt grows. Your multi-generational services struggle to work together. Building an identity fabric can fix this. It makes all your identity tooling stronger and allows you to connect any app to any service you want to use with zero coding, zero maintenance, and zero app downtime. Strata's identity orchestration platform separates the identity logic from your applications so you can optimize existing IAM tools and manage them in a single control plane. Now, every vendor, standard, and architecture work together. In short, building your identity fabric means you can secure your non-standard apps, keep your complex access policies, retire outdated IDPs, and modernize in record time. So build your fabric with Strata Identity and get rid of tech debt for good. Visit strata.io slash cyberwire, share your identity priorities, and receive a pair of AirPods Pro. Offer valid for organizations over 5,000 employees. Connect today at strata.io slash cyberwire. The IT world used to be simpler. You only had to secure and manage environments that you controlled. Then came new technologies and new ways to work. Now, employees, apps, and networks are everywhere. This means poor visibility, security gaps, and added risk. That's why Cloudflare created the first-ever connectivity cloud. Visit cloudflare.com to protect your business everywhere you do business. (laughs) 
AppSec firm Veracode recently released their yearly state of software security report, tracking trends they see in their customers to see how application development processes are changing. Chris Weisopel is chief technology officer at Veracode. So we looked at all the applications over a 13-month period. This was 310,000 applications. And it included over 5 million scans of those applications. So the average was scanned six times, but we, we know that some apps are scanned daily and some are scanned yearly. But uh, we looked at the makeup of those applications to understand how are de- application development trends changing. And what we saw was the apps are getting smaller and the development process is getting more automated. Some of these findings... You know, if you split apps into small, medium, and large, we saw 143% growth of small applications. Um, hmm. if, you, if you split the way people are invoking a testing service, are they manually doing this through a web interface, or are they doing it through an API, we saw there's 133% growth of the API method. So these things tell us apps are getting more componentized, more microservice-oriented, and uh, development pipelines are getting more automated. And what do you suppose is driving this trend? Yeah, so I think it really is, uh, it's, it's two trends, right? It's the trend towards uh, DevOps, which is, you know, any manual step in the process is, is sort of deemed a bug that needs to be fixed and automation be put in place of manual processes to make things more repeatable, more reliable, and of course, faster. So I think that's one major trend. The other one is the cloud-native application trend. Cloud-native applications are just built out of smaller um, executable code chunks called microservices with APIs on them, rather than you know the traditional data center application was more of a three-tier architecture. So we, we see that the fact that apps are shrinking, we're assuming that those apps are becoming more componentized and my, more microservice-oriented. What, if any, are the security implications of things heading in this direction? Yeah, so one implication is a growing um, attack surface because all these microservices now have uh, APIs on them which require input validation, authorization, and authentication. Um, That connection needs to be encrypted. When you break up a monolithic application where everything is running in one process into many different microservices, now you got to think about you you have more attack surfaces, more edges that people can interact with your code from. And so that that has to be thought through. It could be a negative unless you take care of it and have a consistent approach for building these microservices and securing them. It can be a positive. It's definitely a positive to see automation of security testing. Any anything that is automated will be done, can be done like for every code deployment or perhaps every code change. And that basically leads to defects being found earlier in the development lifecycle. And things that when you know about a problem earlier, it's both easier to fix. And, and typically less, less expensive to fix. There's less people involved. There's less systems involved when you catch things as quick as possible after the defect has been created. Well, based on the information that you've gathered here, what are your recommendations for folks in the security side of the house? Should, should they be making some adjustments here with this, uh, with this reality? 
Yeah, so um, I think the the trend towards microservices is something that your development teams are going to want to do. It's just a more reliable and more efficient way to build applications, especially when you have that cloud-native infrastructure. So that's something that um, you're going to just have to adjust to. But I, I think the thing that security teams can do is make sure they leverage all that automation that the development teams have have built in their CI CD pipeline and make sure that any security testing they're doing that you know is is automated can be integrated in um, at in the right places in the uh, in in that CI CD pipeline and I would say um, even before that if you can integrate into the IDE even before the code is uh, is, is built that's even better Use automation, use integrations, and and shift as far left as you can. That's Chris Weisopel from Veracode. Are lengthy security reviews pulling attention away from your security program? With the largest network of trust centers, Vanta can help you streamline security reviews to win customer trust, save time, and close deals fast. Proactively demonstrate security by showcasing key resources like your SOC 2 or ISO 27001 and provide real-time evidence for passing controls. And when a security questionnaire is required, Vanta takes the first pass for you. Visit vanta.com slash cyber to take a self-serve tour. That's vanta.com slash cyber. And I'm pleased to be joined once again by Daniel Prince. He's a senior lecturer in security and protection science at Lancaster University. Daniel, it's always great to have you back. I want to touch base with you today on some of the things I know you're tracking when it comes to IoT devices, and specifically IoT devices that have to do with the healthcare side of things. What sort of things have you been tracking lately? So uh, we've recently started a project here at uh, Lancaster University uh, to look at how can we improve the security in developing health IoT devices. And, And one of the challenges that we've come across like many uh, many IoT and, and industrial control system kind of uh, environments, is this balance between safety and uh, security and, and the tensions between the two. And one of the things that we've been looking at is how do we actually help developers really develop a, a good understanding of that balance for the products they're developing and the, and the user and the, and the communities they're trying to serve and We've developed this um, concept of safeguarding, and and it's this idea that you can really use security as a protection mechanism for the safety aspects of your product. And you know, it sounds very obvious up front, but you know, this idea of security as a safeguarding mechanism and using that as a tool to help un- uh, developers understand the kind of features that they need to have in their health IoT products is is something that we're, we're really working to develop interventions on. Can you walk us through the types of things that you're recommending here? What exactly are you laying out? So as part of the project, what we're trying to do is work with health IoT developers to get them to understand at a very early stage the types of 
threats that they, they might face uh, from the attackers. So, so who are the attackers and why might they attack their system? And then from that, we're helping them to develop approaches to take a balanced view about where to put their constrained resources. We've seen a boom of health IoT products from you know very large companies, but a lot of very small startup companies coming along. And they've got what we call constrained developer resource. You know, it might be two, three people. And so when you've got that limited resource, how do you actually allocate developing of new features for the consumer alongside developing the aspects of the system that need protection and develop this uh, the safeguarding of the safety of the, the system, whether that be the data of the individual or more physical aspects, such as, you know, thinking about uh, a pacemaker, for example, is the classic uh, cybersecurity scenario. So what we're trying to do is develop interventions and new approaches that the developers can really think about how to balance, you know, the idea of developing new features to gain more commercial ground with the protective elements that protect the safety of the individuals using their products. Is part of this making the case that uh, it's in their long-term interest to do so, that, you know, despite the pressures to release the product, to ship the product, that uh, in the long run, uh, they're going to be better off if they're mindful of these things? Yeah, definitely. I mean, there's been quite a lot of work done on the economics of security in systems. Um, and so people like Hal Varian are building on the work of Hal Varian, so Ross Anderson, Bruce Schneier, these have looked at the economics of uh, cybersecurity. And, you know, there's, there's some really rational decisions around being first to market, getting the good features, making it easy for complementers to use your product, because that helps drive a monopoly within a particular sector. And so what we're trying to do is also have balanced that with this long-term view that actually you're going to have to protect your consumers and, and ultimately the end customers that are using your products because uh, they're the ones that are going to be vulnerable and need these healthcare devices. So you need to be able to have to take a bit more of a long-term view but balance that with the commercial incentive to be able to get the new features out there to be able to, to sell your product. And so it's entirely right to think that we need to have these approaches built in through the life cycle of the developing of the device so that to enable developers to take this long-term view. Because after all, one of the classic problems with security is you never know when a security failure might occur, um, but you definitely know the, uh, very early on what features the user wants to buy. So, you know, it's balancing something that may never happen with something uh, that you definitely know is going to happen and, and will actually help the business grow. But actually, you're turning the the whole thing around and saying actually security and safeguarding is a particularly important aspect of your product and service. And how do you actually market and sell that is something else that we're working on. Do you find that that's resonating with the people that you're talking to, that they're they're finding security? Is it a place where it's a competitive advantage? Yes and no. I think one of the the, the, the thing that when we're talking to the healthcare, uh, the health IoT uh, companies, they're aware that they have to really make sure that their product is is safe, particularly those health IoT products which have a direct impact on physical well-being. So, you know, your classic insulin pumps and, and, and so on, the things that really directly affect the body or those that, that affect the environment for, for example, looking after older people so that they can remain in their home. And so you've got this real 
understanding that we need to build products that that are safe for those to use. So the idea of how to turn security into that kind of also that message that sits alongside saying that this is a safe product, which is underpinned by digital technology, and we've gone through a really rigorous development approach to ensure that security is something that the the companies we're working with are really kind of focusing on and saying, yeah, this is exactly the type of intervention and support that we need long term and so that we can improve and gain that commercial advantage. All right. Well, Daniel Prince, thanks for joining us. And that's The Cyberwire. For links to all of today's stories, check out our daily briefing at thecyberwire.com. Be sure to check out this weekend's Research Saturday and my conversation with Danny Adamidis from Lumen's Black Lotus Labs. We're discussing the new Kony campaign that kicks off the new year by targeting Russian Ministry of Foreign Affairs. That's Research Saturday. Check it out. The CyberWire podcast is proudly produced in Maryland out of the startup studios of Data Tribe, where they're co-building the next generation of cybersecurity teams and technology. Our amazing CyberWire team is Elliot Peltzman, Trey Hester, Brandon Karp, Eliana White, Peru Prakash, Justin Sabi, Tim Nodar, Joe Kerrigan, Carol Terrio, Ben Yellen, Nick Vilecki, Gina Johnson, Bennett Moe, Chris Russell, John Petrick, Jennifer Iben, Rick Howard, Peter Kilpie, and I'm Dave Bittner. Thanks for listening. We'll see you back here next week. Hi, everybody. It's Maria Varmazas here, your host over at T-Minus Space Daily, and sometimes a guest on Hacking Humans, too. We here at N2K CyberWire work hard to bring you concise, intelligence-driven news and commentary, and we'd like to know how we're doing. Please take a few minutes to complete our audience survey and share your feedback to help us continue to grow and meet your needs. Visit cyberwire.com slash survey. That's cyberwire.com slash survey to get started. Thanks so much for your input as we reach for the stars. It means the universe to us. And now a word from our sponsor, SpyCloud, the leader in operationalizing cybercrime analytics. Traditional threat intelligence is a thing of the past. Cyber criminals are stealing vast amounts of credentials, session cookies, and financial data every day, and it's hard to keep up. SpyCloud is the trusted partner businesses turn to to fully understand their darknet exposure risk and neutralize threats before it's too late. SpyCloud alerts your organization as soon as an employee or customer's data appears on the dark net, so you can act faster than bad actors to prevent cyber attacks like ransomware, session hijacking, account takeover, and online fraud. With insights from the industry's largest repository of recaptured data, protect the digital identities and systems most important to your business. Get your free corporate darknet exposure report at spycloud.com slash cyberwire and see what information criminals have in their hands today. 
That's spycloud.com slash cyberwire. 